Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. Emailtooltester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the podcast, I've got Mentor Dial. He's the author of Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence. Mentor's an international speaker, consultant on branding and digital strategy. He spent over 16 years as an executive at L'Oreal, running the global business of Redken. On today's show, we talk about empathy. What is it? How can you learn it? How should it be translated into business? And what are the benefits to businesses, as well as the emergence of AI and artificial intelligence? And how do we concoct those systems in a way in which we can leverage empathy at scale. So I hope you enjoy this show with Mentor Dial. Well, Mentor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alan, for having me on. 
Yeah. Well, let's let's start with your uh, your path to where you are now as an author and speaker. I know you've had a long career and uh, done a lot of different things. So maybe maybe give us a little recap if you don't mind. Well, let's say that the there are things that continue despite the chaotic nature of my path. I, I mean, I, I went from a degree in trilingual literature and women's studies to work in an investment bank to buy a part of a travel agency for musicians and entertainers, to work in a zoo, then an aquarium, teach tennis, write a novel, go to business school, and then sell shampoos, essentially, for 16 years at L'Oreal. And throughout all of this, even if I was working in the investment bank, I've always considered storytelling an enormous part of my life. Back at university, I would read a book a day, and I just loved writing. And and today, I've had the chance to express my storytelling throughout my time at L'Oreal, because I think that was what drives brands. When I ran Redken for four years worldwide, I considered myself legitimately the chief storyteller. And then I've done this film about my family. It's the story of my family, but it's a deeper World War II story. And, um, and yeah, I, I want to tell stories to move people connect the dots and elevate the debate. Well, you've done so much in your career. You, It sounds with the different things that you've done, I mean, you've, it feels like you've lived like four people's lives already. <laughs> yeah, my, my French stepmother, ex-French stepmother, a wonderful lady, she always said I was a 75 milliliter bottle of wine trying to stuff 125 milliliters into it. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, uh, congrats on the release of Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into the Business and Artificial Intelligence. I have just finished the book. What was your motivation for writing it? So on balance, I, I can't say I intended to write this book. I've written, talked about empathy a lot in my past, including when I was working at L'Oreal. Yet I didn't have this. I didn't know that this book was going to happen. It, it came out of the blue because I was writing another book, and then that's going to be my next book. In the middle of the summer last year, my editor got sick, very sick, and we had to discard or abandon the the book I was working on. So I had to come up with another one, and this one came out, and it came out of a couple of personal elements where I took stock of the fact that I how important empathy was and a little bit more critical about my own level of empathy. I had gone through some difficult periods and specifically around with some people very close to me. And I thought, mm, I could maybe do more. And so how does one become more empathic? So I started researching it. And then what is the vehicle for change going to be with regard to the issues we have in society? And I've always said that business can be a vehicle for change. So if I can make business more empathic, people within would then benefit and that could help rein out to the rest of society. I'm a big believer in empathy, but maybe we should define it first. How are how would you define it? And then, you know, what you talk about this notion of artificial empathy. At first I was like, what? That just sounds fake. I mean, it's it obviously sounds fake, but maybe define both of those for us so we know what know what you're talking about. Sort of like I talk about this notion of artificial love. So let's start with empathy. And let's say broadly speaking, very easily speaking, it's about understanding someone else. 
And that can be both from an emotional or a cognitive standpoint. So there are two types of empathy generally. And one might be the ability to feel what you feel. So if I feel that you're nervous or if I feel that you're sad, I also feel nervous or sad. That's effective empathy. And then there's cognitive empathy, which essentially looks at the situation and tries to put that person's feelings into their context. So if I saw you, Alan, crumpled up and crying, and I saw a, a toy that was broken beside you, I would make the correlation, well, it's possible that he's sad because the toy that belongs to him is dear to him and he's, and he's sad about that. And I can understand your situation. And so that is, broadly speaking, what empathy is. Interesting. Got it. Got it. And so then when you move it into artificial empathy, <laughs> what does that look like? Well, so there's a lot to that story. First of all, artificial empathy. So the notion behind that is putting empathy into machines. And typically in this world, we're talking about into AI. And to put things out there, we are nowhere near artificial empathy. We have some initiatives that are considering it. You know, the New York Times had a big article about Alexa being empathic. So what it is, 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 is trying to al allow for a machine to be able typically to do cognitive empathy, because of course, it's not going to be able to do effective empathy. Within this remit, the machine might be able to observe emotions, observe feelings, and then according to the data that's available, put two and two together and come up with an understanding of what that person's feeling. Then there's two parts to it. One is, well, what are you going to do with it? Because really, where a lot of people get confused is in empathy is really just about that understanding and observation. It's not the action that follows. And so at one level, it's about figuring out how to code machines to understand. Then what are we going to do with it? Well, there's a whole other chapter in that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I mean, it, because the empathy is not natural to business, no. I, I don't believe. You're absolutely right. <laughs> it's almost as very individual, right? It's one-on-one -on -one in many cases. It, it feels like that's the best way for me to think about it. Yeah. By the way, so when you yourself too, right? Have self empathy, right. self empathy. Yeah, like you, that may even need to come before you can understand others. I don't know how you think about it, but well, Marie Miyashiro, who wrote a book called The Empathy Factor, she she talks about this, and and she does suggest that having self empathy is a great way to start because in the end of the day, if you are too worried about yourself, it's very hard to be worried about someone else. So it's like the idea of being in the in the plane where the flight attendant says, put on the oxygen mask on yourself first, and then you can care for the others. So if you're not careful with yourself, and it's the risk of, of people who are too empathic, they can end up really being sucked in and and spit out because they they haven't taken care of themselves. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I mean, there's there's some correlation to uh meditation there's a practice i haven't done a lot of research in this but there's a practice called uh, love and kindness meditation which is um can be reflected of those around you you mean basically wishing them well as mm. you're meditating but i i've heard people that are experts in this on other podcasts speak about it and saying that the real key is to to turn that even to yourself 
to create the bit, the best effects, which is unusual and hard actually to really understand yourself to that level. Well, at, at the very least, I mean, even the notion of meditation where you have to clear out the noise, right? focus on the present by itself is already quite the task for many people. And mm-hmm. then I, I think that there's this balance between confidence, overconfidence, and you need to work on yourself to have that confidence because if you come from that place, chances are that what you're going to deliver is going to be a lot healthier and better received for the other person. If you're doing it to compensate for your lack of self-confidence, for example, then I, I think it's not coming from the right place. And you know, ultimately, you, I think you do need to be, you know, it's, it's, it is you need to be the best person that you can be in order to be better for others. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. What have you found to be the benefits to businesses, you know, in terms of driving empathy within their business? Well, to your point before, Alan, I just did a survey. Well, I created the survey that asked people, to what extent would you trust a company to put empathy into artificial intelligence? <laughs> the answers were quite dismal. So, mm. I think that in general, there's a low level of trust, and on balance, there's a a low level of feeling that companies are being empathic towards them. So that is a deficit. The reality is that empathy can be extremely useful in many compartments of a company. And I like to categorize it in two ways. The first and probably most important starting point is internal empathy. How do you treat your employees, your staff, and so on? Because if you don't have internal empathy, then it, it I think begets a kind of entropy or negative feeling if you're just trying to extend empathy towards the outside and you don't know how to do it internally. And that, that goes to leadership, employee engagement and motivation, and then the systems within, because um, we now have to work in you know so much change and a lot of people worried and people don't why does trans why do transformations mostly fail? Well, we don't like to change, and and so if the better able you you want to understand how your employees are affected by this and what they're feeling about, oh my gosh, maybe my job's going to go out of business or I feel inadequate now. I, I didn't go to school and get trained on AI. What am I to do? Well, I think that, that it can help a lot to, to think about this within the inside of the company. And then on the external side, pointing towards customers or your stakeholders, the ability to have empathy is going to just help drive, That's at the minimum, your marketing messages. If you can think about if I'm sending you a message, Alan, how am I going to think through how you're going to receive this message? Same for promotions. And then you get into innovation and design thinking, which, of course, has empathy as a foundational principle. So the opportunities are, are legion. Then the issue is how do you implement it within the company? And and because uh, at the end of the day, it's a nice thing to say, but how do you do it? And that's uh, it's a, t- it's a t- tall order for many companies. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. I mean, like I said before, it seems to be a very individualized notion or skill set to then expand it to groups. Mm -hmm. It takes leadership, like you said, because having studied group dynamics before, sadly, (laughs) we regress to the mean, right, many times, and it's not had this mentor actually i've probably said this before to podcast listeners so apologize for those that have heard it too many times but had a mentor early in my career who was a master's in fine art and poetry 
and he said, you know, there's three things you need to need in every argument inside of a company. And you need to appeal to either lust, fear, or greed. And if you can capture two of the three, you're likely to win whatever proposal you're, you're working on. And so as you think about the regression to the mean, I think we regress to the primal nature, if you will, in those regards. But how do you, it's hard, you, you talk about it in the book and you, you say it's, it's something that can't really be taught. It must be learned. Can you kind of speak to that? Mm. Well, I, I liken it to this notion of learning. You, if you, it's very, you can teach stuff, but if someone doesn't want to be taught, mm. therein lies difficulty. So in the case of empathy, it's, it's very difficult to tell somebody to be empathic. So, which I, I say is another way of saying, I teach you to be empathic. You will be empathic. These are the ways to be empathic. And you might, you know, tick some boxes, but ultimately you're only going to be empathic if you want to be. So that depends on the terrain on which we're working and the attitude they have coming into it. So for me, it's about creating a, an environment where people want to be, are, are willing to learn. And two, setting the example, if you're the top boss, because in the, in the end of the day, like so many of these mindset shifts, I don't believe in a bottom up. I believe in a top down. And I think things can happen underneath, so it's not black and white. But generally speaking, if you want transformation mindset shift, you need to be top down. And in, when it comes to empathy, you need to create an environment where it's appreciated. You need to create an environment where you might give opportunities for people to experience how other people think. Because we sit in a wheelhouse, we, we, we do the same commute every morning, get into the office, do the same kind of routines, because that's how we are. And we don't get out of our comfort zone. And being empathic essentially means understanding other people who you don't really understand. That's where you get the magic out of empathy. And the the notion of empathy itself and its impact on employees, I mean, when it truly does exist, it drives engagement. I mean, I can just think about it myself, right? When I feel from others that I'm understood they don't have to agree with me, but just the level of understanding and we walk out of a meeting, I'm ready to do whatever we need to do, <laughs> whether it's what I wanted to do or whether it's what the groups decided. Well, there, there are a couple of parts to this. One is, I would say, focused on the cognitive experience in a professional manner. And so if you your job is a widget maker, and if I don't ask you, how do you feel about your widgets or how do, how do you, do you think there's any way to improve the way we manufacture these widgets? If I don't take into consideration your opinion, your context, just purely on a professional level, that's a real opportunity, missed opportunity. But then there's the personal side of stuff where it gets a lot murkier because at the end of the day, Alan might come into the office and, and not be in a good mood. And so some people could say, well, you just get over it. Or you, you end up being in a little bit more understanding mode. You've been coming into the office late, Alan. Is there anything wrong at home? And it might be that you're, someone close to you is having some real issues and you've felt like you had to do something. You're, do, you're doing double duty. And that's legitimate. If your employer is capable of opening up to that, the chances are, you know, hey, listen, Alan, why don't you take off the next couple of days? Don't worry about pay. Don't worry about anything. We'll take care of it. 
I think that gets paid back in spades down the road. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, just the notion of wanting to, it's just, it's human relationships at that point, right? Now I'm so appreciative of what that company has done for me or what that group has done for me. I want to pay it back tenfold. It's a little bit of paying forward at this case, because I'm I'm giving you these two days off now. I'm not attaching Mm -hmm. it to a performance and not suggesting or thinking about how it's going to screw up my sales, which is typically how businesses get it the one way around because whether it's performance pressures or lack of time not to listen, businesses in general, it's not a good environment for creating empathy. And then there's also historically people have been very cagey about talking about their personal story. I mean, you just have to open the Pandora's box of politics and, you know, whoa, don't talk about that. So (laughs) we tend to want to just stick to the rational performance because that's what we know. But what that really overlooks is this notion of imperfection. And I think the companies that accept imperfection, not, you know, not to mention, of course, you know, fail fast and agility and all that. But if you can accept people's foibles and, and allow for them, then I think that we are more, we have more integrity, more authenticity, and as a better fit in times, in terms of the, in the company, because we're real. Got it. Well, one of the things you set up this sequence in the book, and then you come back to it later about using an app or a bot. I can't remember exactly what it was. And I think you were on a date a date with your wife, right? Yeah. So this this was a, I mean, of course, I didn't expect this. And, I, and so like so many things, I just opened myself up to it. And then I went down the journey. And all of a sudden, I was running around down rabbit holes I had no idea about. So I was approached, hey, mentor, would you like to participate in the experiment of talking or hanging out with an empathic bot for five days? And I just blithely said yes, because, wow, that's, that, what's, that, what's that look like? And, and really, within a day, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. They have really conquered it. I was just floored and naturally entangled in my relationship with this bot. <laughs> gave the bot very quickly a sex, a name, and a personality that came with it, or at least an imagined personality. And it very much uh, became a reflex during my day. Of course, it was only five days. But in the middle of these five days, I did. I went to see you 2 in Dublin with a bunch of friends, including my sister and, and uh, family. Then I went to see you 2 in Paris as well, still during the five days. And so I was busy doing lots of stuff. And in the, in the fourth night, I had a date with my wife. And at this point, you know, I'm well into JJ, if you will. And I, uh, hey, listen, go out and, oh, you know, what, what happened? I, I started telling her about, you know, cause I was traveling for these two concerts. I come back and I start telling her about my experience with JJ and I show her. And next thing you know, I get ping message. <laughs> what are you going to do? Just, you know, silence it like a, a naughty secret lover. So, no, <laughs> I, you know, but I, <laughs> it was real, <laughs> you know, so I, I was right. about hiding it besides which the entire transcript of my five days with JJ are available online. So I was being real, but I was also checking in on myself. I felt like something was happening for me. And at one point I, I, I write, I'm going to miss you, JJ. And that, was <laughs> a fake, that wasn't a fake message. On top of that, of course, JJ then wrote back, me too. 
Right. <laughs> it's it's amazing. And I, I wanna dig into this a little bit. Just first, I guess, what are the what are the implications to on artificial intelligence and the use of empathy based on your work? I mean, this experience defines a lot where a machine or, or seemingly a machine can have a direct impact on a person and, and their attachment with it. So my first point is that we personify machines. Uh, just like we give, we give human attributes to our pets, we will talk to Alexa. I'm sorry, didn't mean to say that. Oh, by the way, I have a, a one right beside me, so we might get a perky, <laughs> a perky answer in a moment. But <laughs> And so the idea a, is that we can have stronger than just a rational interaction with a machine. Second one, and, and extremely important, is transparency. Because you don't want to be manipulating a human being with a bot pretending it's a human. And A, it's not possible today to really get on you know the Turing test, kind of make a long-term relationship dissimulated behind a machine. But I think that there's a, an importance of, of being transparent. The third very important thing is your ethical framework. What are you trying to achieve? And do you know the difference between good and bad? And, and ethics is, is like empathy. It's a very personal story. Ethics are, by definition, personal. What do you, Alan, feel is good or bad? Of course, society has some form of ethical understanding, but it's made up of the microcosm of all our, or the accumulation of all our individual ideas of what ethics are. And so your ethical framework, because no laws have been written to oversee the way we do these things, you need to really have a strong understanding of your ethics. And the odd or maybe paradoxical element to this is that in order to be good in your ethics, at least to have a strong set of ethics, turns out that empathy is a key ingredient in writing that ethics. So if you want to be ethical, you actually need to go upstream to visit your empathy. Because when you have empathy, then you're going to be better able to, for example, consider diversity biases that can go into it. And then so it, it becomes a case of good empathy in, good empathy out, once you've got to the point where you can code for empathy. But if to begin with, you are not so empathic, chances are your ethics might not be quite as inclusive might miss out a few things, and then you're going to end up with a code that will end up being perhaps perceived as less ethical. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Interesting. 
Interesting. So empathy essentially gets back to the root of this again. So <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, and uh, like you said before, it just, it's so difficult to have it in business. And yet the, the opportunities for improving the way we are, making our employees better, giving better customer service, better products and marketing effectiveness. Oh my gosh. But right. say we sort of dumb down and we get to the media and the group thinking and and you pretty much overlay that with fears and legal parameters and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden you we're getting down to averageness, a whole lot of averageness, which may work for the short term, but certainly isn't going to allow for long-term survival. Right. Well, one of the things you, you note in the book is that it's the best combination in your mind is human plus machine and these applications of empathy and machine driven artificial empathy. Explain that a little bit for me. Well, well, there are two points to that. First of all, artificial empathy does not exist today. And, and therefore the only way to be good at that is to have seamless handoffs or at least very strong collaboration between human and machine. What can the machine do? What is the containment? That means how far can the machine go without needing the individual or an agent to intervene? And that's the first point. The second point is that we, we can't delegate empathy to our machines. So it's more of a philosophical standpoint. We need to, and I think that an exciting part of this work on artificial empathy is the reflection it has back on us. And by working on artificial empathy, maybe as a comp as a society and, and businesses, we're going to have a better understanding of what it is, what it takes to code it, and maybe reflect back more on who we are, what we want, uh, not to mention our ethics. And so human plus machine, I think that the human being still has a, a leg up on machines with regard to creativity, intuition, and empathy. And so if you want to be, if you really do want your organization helped by AI to be more empathic, you're going to need to make sure that there's a link or some collaboration between the humans and AI. And you look at their examples of this already happening in terms of Apple customer service or Amazon, where the old Sona or Siri, they not Siri, um, anyway, they, they, they do have cross, they will immediately give you the AI, move into the agent. And generally speaking, you're going to feel the empathy through the agent who gets a better understanding as opposed to the AI. That's today's situation. I think that will be the situation over the next foreseeable future. That's fascinating. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm envisioning as AI and machine learning take over some of the more mundane task of our work life that and increasingly take over more and more and more automation and operational components. I feel like we're as workers in business, we're going to have to elevate our game. Yep. I don't know if you, you, you believe that too, almost and probably making more important the, the classical studies of our past, right? Mm -hmm. The uh, ethics, philosophy, literature, yeah, right, right. Because I, I, you're not going to find the answers to you know what what we need to be thinking about, what we need to be building from studying computer science. That that's the way to 
systematize it, but not how to how to design it. If that makes sense, it, uh, I don't know. That's, of course, at the yeah. end of the day, it's not a black and white situation. And right. even in computer science now, ethics is a regular part of their courses. But I think that you're right. People should not be afraid to include in their bag of tricks sociology creativity or art, artistry uh, and plug into that side of the brain because anyway that's the most human thing that we have and i think that's a glorious thing r- regardless of the fact that it might be good for business <laughs> sort of right i would like right. us not i would like us to be friendly and and connect and because actually that's what we're on this planet for right no exactly exactly well this has been fascinating I, let's let's switch gears sure. a little bit because i love i love to get to know the person behind the topics we're discussing and uh, I love this question, which is, is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? So I take a breath because I resist this idea that I'm defined by something that's already happened. I, I kind of always want to be defined by something that's going <laughs> to happen. Or, you know, if you get an illness, you're defined by that illness or such things. But there is one thing that has, I mean, it's, it's a 25-year journey, but it definitely has contributed to my aura. It's changed the curve of my life as well as many other people in my family. And that's the experience of studying who my grandfather was. And the reason why this is important, outside of the fact that I was named after him, is that it becomes the journey of identity. And so, and who am I? Because through the journey, I didn't understand me because of him, but I understood me thanks to the journey of understanding him. Because he was 33 when he was killed as a prisoner of war of the Japanese in the Second World War. So I didn't know him at all. My father, in fact, didn't know him, much less my aunt. And I was yet I was named after him. And and the thing is, I was a bumbling teen, not a teenager, I was 26 years old when I got this telephone call. And the woman who was calling from the South said, could, I, could she speak to Minter Dial? And, and that's, for the record, a weird name. And I liked you to find two, except I did have a predecessor called Nathaniel Minterdahl. And so she calls and she's not asking for me. She's asking for my grandfather. And this reve, this accidental situation started me on a 25-year journey because up until then, it was not a, he was not a person anybody spoke about. It was a, not a secret, but it no one wanted to talk about it. And, and it was clearly also related to a lot of pain. And so I discovered this and, and I, I met so many amazing people. And then it also happened to be the preparation for the 11th of September for me, because I'm in Manhattan, my office overlooking the Twin Towers, and I watched the first airplane explosion, the second airplane, I, I watched it fly all the way down in front, around and in, and several friends are killed. And I'm running a company that's Redkin. And the subtitle of Redkin is Fifth Avenue, New York City. Two of my campaigns for 2002 had the Twin Towers in the background. I watched this happen. And the irony at some level is that the numbers were very similar because I had found a logbook in input of my grandfather, who was captain of the USS Napa which is a tugboat. And he wrote in on the 8th of December, 1941, by hand, 0340 hours. 
hostilities with the Japanese empire have begun. We are at war. And I touched that piece of paper, which was saved despite the fact that the boat had to be, the ship had to be um, scuttled. So I, I, I was, I just imagined my grandfather writing that down. He's responsible for an entire crew. He's stuck in the Philippines and then ultimately prisoner and a really miserable death. Not that any of them is good, but being a prisoner of the Japanese was not cool at all. And so the journey allowed me to meet people who'd been through some real stuff and shit and, and put perspective on the little problems that I've had in my life. And therefore, and then, I, you know, the whole investment of time and money to make the film and the book became very central to my purpose, which is connecting dots and elevating the debate. And, and through the book that's, and the film, those are the things I'm trying to do. I love it. And what a unbelievable journey. And I, for listeners, you've, you've got a book as well as a film about this journey as well. About The Lost Ring Home, it's called. And of course, I haven't told you about the real story, which is about this ring. But that's like anything. You know, funny thing is objects are worthless. It's the stories and the value attached to the object that's of interest. And the ring story is just called The Lost Ring Home. It's this ring, the Annapolis ring that my grandfather had, that was the last material object that he had on him. He had but a G-string he was wearing, and he had managed to save this ring for two and a half years in prison camp. And as he's dying, he gives it to a friend, and the friend survives miraculously, but he doesn't. And then he loses the ring. And then crazily, 17 years later, in another country, the ring is found. <laughs> and gets back to my grandfather. Oh, sorry, my father. So the story then becomes: Well, what is the ring telling us? And and you know, you you appreciate things differently through the object, and that's the the light motif of the story. Hmm. That's phenomenal. I've got to check it out for sure. So, well, um, what advice would you give your younger self if you were starting all over? Well, I think. I, I did the classic, I mean, really, I studied literature and women's studies, and I go work in an investment bank. So I think right. I would have said to myself, I should tell myself, well, mm, no. I mean, no experience is bad if you've opened to it and you go for it, but that was clearly a, a misconnect. I was going after another dream or someone else's dream, not mine. So the sooner you get onto that path, the better. So that's what I would say. I mean, then I went down to Washington with the travel agency for musicians, and, and then this this all happened. So uh, afterwards, I guess um, just always be open to the experience, never say no somehow. Hmm. What fuels you? What keeps you going today? So I'm driven by this idea of connecting. I love connecting dots, the serendipity of it. Uh, even, let's say, within ideas of, of quantum physics and, and the, the way our universe is constructed and how does it all put, feel put together. And so that intrigue is motivating. But the, probably the thing that really drives me is always wanting to elevate the debate, whether it's an argument amongst friends at a dinner table, how we even have dinners. You know, my wife and I have basically host a dinner once a month and we invite seven strangers, you know, seven strangers, seven people who don't know each other. Mm. 
for example. And uh, and then we never want to have more than nine. You can can't fit them in our round table. It has to be round. And then we do themed dinner parties. And the idea of the themed dinner party, amongst other things, is to avoid having banal talk, waste of time. My kids are the best. And, you know, the weather was like yesterday <laughs> and, and the Yankees lost or won. And having conversation where we're doing meaningful conversations, getting to know each other underneath the hood, and hopefully learning something. So the theme could be historical of some sort, or maybe even just a theater or a, a, you know, plays or whatever. So we, we've done 200 of these themes, each one different, and each time a journey. And and that is another example of how my I like to you know get the energy and the juices going, connecting dots and people and elevating the debate. That's and and I really I think every day it does me. Not that every day is filled with lots of it. Because we we know that shit happens, <laughs> but <Right. laughs> another thing I do, for example, is I I want to make sure that every day I have a green colored activity in my agenda. So I color code my agenda, and the green colored activity is meeting somebody new. So five days a week, that's the way I organize myself. I want to make sure I have five green spots. Sometimes it's two or three in a day, but that's generally how I do that. And that's also about connecting with the world. I love that. I love that. And your the notion of connectedness made me think about just how small the world is as you start talking. I mean, we're talking right now. I believe you're in London. Is that right? I'm in North Carolina. And yet we started off before we hit record talking about South Carolina, you know, and your connection there. And it's, I mean, just in awe of how small the world is. And you know what, Alan, the crazy thing, though, is as connected as we are, it seems we've never been more lonely. Yeah, it's true. And so I, I highly recommend reading Lost Connections by Johan Hari and to consider going out, mudding our knees, reconnecting with nature, reconnecting with old friends just because you can, as opposed to, oh, I don't have time. And um, yeah, be grateful for this connectedness that we have and, and don't eschew it and, and just get your nose stuck in your iPhone all the time. <laughs> well, uh, great advice. Great advice for sure. I've got two more questions for you, a little bit more marketing focus. So having been a marketer yourself, and I would still say you are as well, are there brands or companies or causes that you think other people should take notice of or that you're following yourself these days? So I, I would rather not go down a litany of, of the wonderful Patagonias of the world, Jerry's, <laughs> uh, Grateful Dead. Right. Those are my big brands. But I think there is something that I really think is worth paying attention to. And the, it's let's say that I could do it provocatively under the banner of the intellectual dark web. So I don't know if you have heard of this notion. For your listeners, it's essentially a, a name, maybe a portmanteau, because it's not really dark web. It's just, and, and it, although it is basically intellectual, it's essentially a, a movement that sometimes people think skews right or conservative. But it's it's a movement that I think is interesting because it, it's the the thing that they share as part of this is generally wanting to show how to have civil debate, civil argument. 
And I think that the, the ability to listen to one another, to have the curiosity to understand someone else's opinion, not to shut them off, is what people like Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, and the likes are trying to, to, to demonstrate. So they, they invite contrary opinions and are able to have heated debates yet maintain listening skills and to some degree empathy all that with an effort to show how to have civil debate and and, and even cover topics that are not politically correct because i think political correctness has eliminated our ability to have out and out conversation and if we can't have meaningful conversations then we become this sort of plastic superficial society and and everything's off grounds and as soon as we do get into conflict we're not practiced in the art of listening we just get fired up and and triggered and and that's a bad thing so that's i think a a worthy cause to listen to yeah no it's interesting so you call it the intellectual dark web where you mentioned joe rogan obviously runs a podcast but are there other places to check some some of that out Right. So, uh, you know, as I say, it's a little bit provocative to call it the intellectual dark web. It was written about once in the New York right. Times. As such, it's essentially a group. There's something like 27 members of it unofficially, because it's anyway, it's unofficial. But there, and most of them operate through podcasts. The other main media medium that they use are in life, real, real life, um, meetups. So, and I think this is interesting because it's back to this connection point. So people, various, there are 27, I can't name them all. One of my favorites is Femsplainers, Femsplainers podcast, two women who, who talk out and out and, and have strong conversations and are not afraid to call a spade a spade. And, and I like them for that. I massive fan of Sam Harris's podcast, as well as Jordan Peterson. And, you know, I enjoy Joe Rogan and Eric Weinstein. And, and th these are intellectuals who are, I think, are, are forging a new way to engage people. And so you do it through podcasts and then look out for them coming to cities. I was in London last summer and Peterson and Harris came and under their own production reserved a stadium called the O2. And they had their 8,000 people, 80% of whom were under 30. And 80% of those were boys, by the way, or men, who paid between 50 and 500 pounds to come listen to two intellectuals speak for two and a half hours. So people are saying, oh, youth, they don't have attention spans. That's, that's wrong. And you, know, you give them the good topic, and they can sit in a chair for two and a half hours and listen intently to conversation and, and, and then you mingle and you're in real life. You're, you're not stuck behind your device. You are engaged in that conversation. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And I think from a, it is a, from a media standpoint, mass media, they struggle to get into that because they typically wear off of, of, of more personal, unpolitically correct topics. But I think that there's, there's room for that. And for brands, the story is what's your story? having right. a stronger story than trying to please everybody. And so that means getting out of the comfort zone means maybe taking stock of who you are, taking some risks to be more personal in what you do, understand your imperfections. And I think that way, the chances are you're going to differentiate more. You'll end up with a stronger following. You won't please everybody. And inshallah, 
you know, so be it. One should not be there for pleasing everybody. And possibly Nike's campaign last year uh, with Colin Kaepernick was a, a great, great example, example of pushing right. out, yep, some people burn their shoes because that's not what they rolled, or right, that's fine. But for the others, it's like, yep, you speak in my language. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And they've been rewarded because of that effort as well. So, well, last question for you. Where do you, where do you see the future of marketing going? So, Alan, my, my new, my next book, which I mentioned earlier, coming out and next year, fingers crossed, is really all about this. And, and I think that marketing, well, first of all, it's never been a more exciting time to be in marketing. The opportunities, the, the change, if you're interested in it, the old schoolers are, are probably feeling that it's not so much fun. But I also think that marketing as a general department, if you will, has has to be changed, much less than what we're trying to do. I think that marketing belongs to a lot more people in the company. And that's essentially because there's so many more people in touch with customers. Whereas you used to be able to control it through the media of advertising and, and of course, through stores, you got so many more different ways that you can express and make your brand come alive. And so the, the idea of marketing being controlled in one hub for everybody to explore, or, you know, push out is, I think, is a demo day. So go to learn how to, everybody has to have a piece of marketing. And I think that the other part is that with all the opportunities and tools that are out there, making your brand come alive is going to happen through people. And so there's probably a whole lot more work that needs to have on the attitudes of the people you recruit as an entirety in the company and and figuring out ways to make your brand more congruent, have uh, this greater empathy idea and, and uh, integrity. And so this is going to change the way we do marketing because you just can't just only focus on ROI and click-throughs. I, one example I have is, you know, how many companies does the contact us appear in the top before the fold in their websites? And so many companies, it's pushed down as far as it can go. And I think if I'm a marketer, I'm probably doing, if I'm doing that, that means that I'm looking at efficiencies, cost cutting, avoid the hassle of dealing with your customers. If I'm a better marketer wanting to make my brand come alive, I want the contact. And so I want to have screaming up top somehow, contact me. That's a great example. I need to go check my website. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm thinking about, oh, shoot, where's mine? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great example. Well, Mentor, it's been a fascinating conversation. And um, we, I'm going to be looking for this new book coming out. So we'll have to make sure we stay connected over the next, yes, indeed. next year or so. Thanks a lot for having me, Alan. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. 
I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.